I'm Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Sakara Life. On today's podcast, we're excited to welcome the mind architect, Peter Crone. Peter believes that the things that hold us back in our lives stem from deep-rooted beliefs from our childhood and the path that we've taken to get to where we are today. And that if we can release those beliefs, that we can discover total, ultimate freedom. Peter is an internationally recognized speaker, author, and mind architect who works with clients spanning from world-class athletes to celebrities to new parents and more. In today's conversation, we explore some of the fundamental beliefs that we have as humans, and we get a bit vulnerable as we dig into some of our own personal thoughts and struggles in our own lives. We hope you find this episode helpful to you in your own exploration of your mind. Please welcome Peter Crone. Also, please note we are recording from our homes via Zoom, so please forgive us for any sound issues. Well, Peter, it's great to have you here on the Sakara Life podcast. As you know, we like to start every podcast with the same question, which is, what is your mission here on Earth? What are you here to do? Ironically, get off Earth as quickly as I can. (laughs) (laughs) No! Based on the shit show that we have going on. No, I'm kidding. I mean, the esoteric philosophical poetic is uh, I'm here to break free of the constraints so that I can discover my timeless, boundless essence and then help others do the same. That's it. Small, that's it. Small little undertaking. <laughs> yeah, what, what is that to you? Is that like the eternity of us and each of us that lives on? Precisely, yeah. The fact that who I consider us to be at our core, whether you call it soul, spirit, consciousness, is limitless. And yet by virtue of the fact that we are in this human incarnation, we become misidentified with the human form, which by design is limited. And that equates to suffering. So I'm basically transcending limitation and hence suffering to discover true freedom and joy and power and love and inherent value and all the things that the human form is trying to find. I've heard you talk about how you think the mind body are one, like it's not the mind and the body, but even hearing you talk right now, it sounds like, you know, the, the spirit incarnates the human body. So they are separate now, or are you saying mind body is the same soul is separate? What well, are your I think they're continuums on a, on a gradient of, we could almost say density or power, right? So when I used to transform people's physical body, you require time, right? It takes time for somebody to, through resistance training, have the hormesis effect of stress to then they adapt and they get stronger or faster. It takes time. With the mind, why now that's what I work on is because changes can be instantaneous. When you recognize that you've had a view of life that then hopefully through a compassionate way is shown to be inaccurate, you're like, oh my God, like I didn't know that I thought that I wasn't good enough for 30 years. 
that can change instantaneously. And then beyond that, I would say is spirit, which is completely, it's ineffable, but it's also unimpacted. Like it, it doesn't, it's not wanting for anything. It's inherently complete. So they are continuums. I wouldn't say they're separate. It's kind of like you getting into a car. Okay. To a certain degree, you're separate to the car, but you're not in terms of having a journey. The mind to me is a little different than the brain. Like if we look at the brain as part of the hardware of the body and the anatomy of what it is to be human, then the mind is sort of that discourse that happens between the material and the immaterial, right? Meaning the, the human essence of the equipment, which is that physical expression, and then the spiritual essence, which is the unmanifest. So we can't really see. So the mind, I feel, is sort of the bridge between the two. So they're all connected, but most people are just misidentified with the physical form. And the limitations. Yeah, yeah and then hence they struggle or they'll say things like, I'm fat or I'm ugly or, you know, it just doesn't, in my world, that's completely inaccurate. Why do you think that's inaccurate to not identify with our human physical forms? It would be like me sitting in my car and saying, I'm a Range Rover. I mean, that's pretty inaccurate, <laughs> right? So that's It's why, just because, the vehicle that gets you around in this life. Yes. But it's not who I am, right? It's getting maybe into semantics, but I think that's important if you're going to discover the power that is available to us as beings versus usually the feelings of worthlessness, inadequacy, and security that are available to us when we identify with physical form. So that's why, to me, it's inaccurate. It's normal, but it's not natural is the way that I distinguish it. It's normal for somebody to think, oh, I'm a certain age, I'm a certain height, I'm a certain weight. But the way that I look at it is if those things can change, right? You can change your weight, you can change your height, you certainly change your age, then you can't be that. You can't be anything that's changing because you're the consistent that is aware of the change. Yeah, I guess like then when you think about it the other way though, Sakara is Sanskrit for the manifestation of Brahman of the universe, like, you know, bringing that, which is kind of does not have form into form. Yeah. And so in your metaphor of the car, I guess the biggest difference is that, you know, when I'm in the car, I can't necessarily change the car, but when I'm here in this body using my mind, I can change my body. Is that part of your belief system? Yes and no, but I think the analogy continues, right? And obviously, whenever the nature of an analogy is, it's not quite reflective, (laughs) right? But you can change the car. You can change the way it performs. You could change it literally. Like you can put different suspension. You could change the color. You could change the quality of the oil or the gas you put in it. So similar to the quality of food that we put into our bodies is Mm -hmm. going to sort of by extension affect the tissues and the quality of our health, right? So to your point, the mind, changing your mind, obviously influences your body the most, right? If we're looking through a lens of fear and survival, then we're going to be in a state of sympathetic fight or flight, which is going to be deleterious over time, and we're going to get sick. If we look through a lens of the world as, you know, I'm a beneficiary of life, I'm I'm held by God or love or whatever, then that's going to give me a different impact on my body. So that's why I focus on the mind, because it's the most powerful form of influence. And you call yourself a mind architect. Not a, the, the. The, the mind. Thank you. (laughs) The mind. I don't think there's that many of us floating around, especially as I created the title itself. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's an amazing title. Can you explain more about what that means to you? What, 
what do you do as the mind architect? So the reason I did come up with it, it was sort of like, you know, uh, necessity being the mother of invention was I'd been called everything from a spiritual teacher to a hitman for the ego to a happiness guru, whatever. I just recognized that there was an opening to get more specific. And I realized, well, I'm redesigning at a certain degree somebody's deep subconscious patterning. And that is located in the mind. So mind architects seem to be quite apropos. So, so that's what I'm doing is I'm helping to reveal the deep subconscious patterns that drive human thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and then consequently results. Most people are just looking at behaviors normally. You go and see an expert, they're like, do this, don't do that, right? They're talking in the realm of action. But to me, that's too far down the line because your actions are commensurate with the way that you think and feel, and the way you think and feel is based on these subconscious patterns. So hence, if I change those, then you think and feel differently, you'll do different things, you'll get different results naturally, effortlessly versus because somebody told you to do it. And in your work, you're working with many, many people, all different types, pro athletes and CEOs and all different types of people. Yeah. Do you see some common threads, like common thought patterns? What are some of those common ones that maybe a lot of people have that potentially are as easy as changing their minds? to release. They are, but they're also, you know, again, it's just by virtue of being human, there's certain what I would consider to be inherent design flaws, we could call them as part of, you know, the human disposition, which is that most people relate to themselves through the lens of some form of inadequacy, insecurity, or scarcity, right? What does that mean in lay terms? Like the I'm not enough, or I don't feel safe in the world, or I don't have enough money. And so that they tend to be the most common themes and then people cope and adapt in different ways of becoming the perfectionist or the people pleaser or you have to be the sexy girl to try and feel valued or seen or you have to be the strong guy to get any sense of status in the world. So humans are pretty basic, honestly, when you get down to, <laughs> with all due respect, you know, to the subconscious patterns that drive people. The mechanisms by which people compensate get a bit complicated, but Deep down, it's usually a little boy or a little girl who just wants to be loved and accepted. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is it sounds like you really wanted to like go upstream from, you know, just actions to thoughts. Do you ever want to go so upstream that you're, I don't know, helping people, parents or helping children? Like, is that part of your work too? Oh, I mean, one of the main tenets of my work and pillars. Yeah, because everybody that I'm working with, whether they be a 60-year-old billionaire or an MVP of the National Baseball League and commanding millions of dollars, what I'm really working with is the narrative and the dialogue that was established as a child. Mm. We both have young children, so I think about this all the time. And, and my oldest, she's four, she's going to be five this year. And I feel like this is the age where I'm starting to see where... <laughs> Like it's obviously been happening her whole life, but I'm just starting to see where like some of the friction is Yeah, that where she's rubbing up against life in a way. And, you know, I'm doing my best to ease the friction and let her be herself. But I don't know, it's getting hard in a whole new way. Like what was hard when she was a newborn, you know, versus two, it's like, it's getting hard kind of in a very kind of cerebral way yeah. where I'm constantly thinking now about 
how I phrase things, like very specifically, not just kind of general phrases, but very specifically for her, how I'm phrasing things. So it's, yeah. it's a whole new world for me. That's great. Cool. Kudos to you as, you know, being a mom, first of all, that's beautiful and congrats, but also one that is sufficiently aware that you want to reflect on the way that, you know, you are being both an example and a role model, but also the way that you use your voice, right? So whenever I help parents, the one thing that I ask them to really consider is, especially when parents struggle, when they get to that point, like you said, resistance or where kids aren't listening, because that's usually the first question is like, you know, why is it that my kids don't listen to me? And I usually ask the question in return and I say, do you at any point make promises for something good or threats for something bad and then don't follow through? And most parents at that point roll their eyes and they say, probably do that multiple times a day. <laughs> I'm like, well, therein lies your issue because you're using your voice. You're displaying to a child who doesn't have the capacity to justify, rationalize, or try to comprehend your actions, but is just going based on pure reaction. And if you say, okay, do your homework and you'll da-da-da, get some trophy reward, but you forget about it or don't, or do that again, and you'll go straight to your room for X amount of hours or days. Whenever you don't follow through on what you say, the child learns that your voice doesn't mean anything. Mm. So it's a very simple but profound way of understanding that we are all alchemists. We use language, which is hot air when you really get it, and we create life. It's pretty powerful. Mm. It's just most people haven't made that connection and hence aren't that responsible. So it sounds like you're at least in that realm of looking at it, which is great. Attempting. And what are some of your tools as adults? Like what are some of the ways you help people architect their mind and their lives? Most of the things that I do to help are dissolutionary in their nature, meaning someone will come to me because of the issue they're dealing with. So it's less, I'm not like a traditional coach, therapist, you know, spiritual guide who's telling you what to do or, oh, if you have anxiety, then this is what you do. Or if you struggle with weight gain, this is what you do. I'll listen to somebody's issues and then I can reverse engineer why do they have the issue. So one of my catchphrases is I don't solve problems, I dissolve them. Because mm. in my world at the core, going back to how we started the conversation, no one has a problem. But based on the lens you look through, you generate problems or things perceive as a problem to you. So if I can shift the lens by which you view yourself and life, then all of a sudden, abracadabra, your problems dissolve versus giving you a solution to the problem. Then it's too late. And how did you get here? And would you consider yourself, like, was it a spiritual path to get here, a religious path to get here? Of those two options, definitely more spiritual. I've never been religious. I respect that people buy into religion. I think religion is fragmental. It means... You know, I have my belief over here and you have your belief over there. And it's sort of very similar to our allopathic sick care system that doesn't work. It's got nothing to do with health. You talk to a gastroenterologist, a neurologist, a cardiologist. That, that to me is like religion. Mine's a much more holistic approach, which is I'm looking that I'm not separate from life. I'm not separate from anybody else. And that to me speaks more to a spiritual dialogue. And so much of how I got to answer your question of how I got to here is my own suffering. I realized I was trapped in the illusion of separation. I was a human being trying to survive my own constraints of inadequacy or for me, the fear of loss was a big thing. 
And so I was in that relationship to my own hurt from my history and trying to avoid it repeating itself, which is what humans do. So when I transcended that and saw the futility of it and also the, the redundancy of it, I found freedom. And do people, do they come to you knowing what their holdup is? Because I was going to say, a lot of people don't even know what's holding them back, right? No, that, therein lies both the beauty, but also we could say the challenge of my work is, I remember I was interviewed by this journalist for Vogue Germany once many years ago. And at the end of the interview, her last question is like, how would you describe what you're bringing the world? And I said, purely as a response, I hadn't, it wasn't a script or anything that I'd said before, but I said, I'm bringing what the whole world doesn't know it's looking for, right? So people think that what they want is more money, a better body, the great partner, like fill in the blank. There's a myriad of things or just to be free of their pain or their anxiety. It doesn't have to be materialistic. You know, they might just want relief. But for me, that's what I'm bringing is true freedom. Now, you walk to Joe Blow on the street and they're like, hey, I'm going to give you freedom. They're like, what the hell are you talking about, loony? I'm like, I am free. But they don't know what they don't know, right? So they're, they're in a prison and their life has become normalized because, well, you know, my wife's just the way she is. What are you going to do about it? You know, it's like there's a resignation, there's a reconciliation of discomfort and suffering that gets integrated into, well, that's just the way life is, <laughs> you know? And so I undo all of that. So... Yes, people are oblivious, but that's where my compassion comes in. But I say, you know, you can't be held accountable for that which you're oblivious to. So at least that brings in compassion because, you know, people are quick to point the finger like, wow, why are you still smoking? Like, don't you know cigarettes are bad? It's like, well, it's that kind of energy towards that person, which is why they smoke because they feel so fucking judged. <laughs> you know, so it's a vicious cycle versus they don't know why they smoke because, you know, when they were young, they grew up in a hostile environment where dad would come in drunk and scream. And as a little kid, they were scared. And then eventually they found some relief or they appeased their internal angst by smoking. And now it became a habit, right? So until that's undone, the behavior isn't going to shift. So it warrants a lot of compassion with my work. But yes, it's also people don't know what is holding them back. They just know the outcome of it. <laughs> It makes me think about how we don't like to talk about calories and people, you know, it's not printed directly on the meal package and people will ask us, how many calories are in this? They come to us wanting to lose weight. And they're like, I need to count my calories. How many calories are in this? We're like, is that really what you want to be spending your time and your brain space and everything? Like figuring out what that calorie, that's not what you're looking for. It's not the calories. What are you actually looking for? You're looking to see, is this meal going to help me lose weight or is it going to make me gain weight? And you think that that number is the key to that. Yeah. Sometimes we get people who are obsessed or, you know, a bit neurotic about these numbers and they've been counting these numbers for years and years of their lives and almost have an addiction to this it's number. Like perceived control. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. but we dig down a level deeper and they feel like it's their path to feeling loved or accepted in the world, right? If they could lose yeah. those five pounds or whatever it might be that their yeah. life is going to change when, you know, maybe it's they need to give up a bit more control in their lives, relax a little yeah. bit, trust the flow of life. And yeah. that might bring them the happiness they're looking for. 
No, for sure. And that's accurate, but I would say it's insufficient, right? Because what you said is beautiful, it's compassionate, it's kind, it's, it's precise, but it doesn't actually point to the why of their obsession the with calories, right? Yeah. So that's what I'm getting to are these deep-seated patterns of who is that person that for them appearance, especially if it's a woman, I'm going to guess that most of your demographic is female. And then there's this emphasis on the feminine around beauty. What is beauty? Why is that important? Because then you get picked by the alpha male so that you survive, right? These are primal patterns. So yeah, I was going to say, this is like the the deepest primal pattern, right? Around yeah. mating and survival. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it's like understanding that that woman's obsession with calories is because of everything that she's heard and understood around calories, which is inaccurate. But nonetheless, in her narrative is the means by which she will potentially lose weight. But why do you want to lose weight? Well, because you think your view of yourself is unacceptable, which is now around your appearance. Why is that significant? Well, because then I'm not going to be picked. I'm not as pretty as my neighbor to da da da. But really what's actually going on at the core is so much self-loathing and the absence of self-acceptance, which is the precursor to not being accepted by life or a mate, right? So we are the precursor to all of our outcomes. And what would you say to that person? I would reverse engineer it down to that deep-seated fear, which is really the absence of self-love and acceptance. And then we would find where did that get created? Like, you know, my mom said, oh, you know, you're a bit of a mistake or this, the older sister was the academic or the athlete and that little girl noticed that she got more attention and for that reason, she felt inadequate. And so she's been fighting that her whole life or maybe even it can be the opposite where someone was always told, oh, you're so pretty, you're so pretty as a little girl, you know, and it's like, it seems like a great um, sort of reinforcement mechanism, but then that becomes the way that that human associates value oh, if I'm pretty, everyone pays me attention. So then you get to 20 and okay, maybe you can hang out being pretty and getting away with still partying. Then you get to 30 and it's like, oh shit, things are changing. Now you're 40, you've got a bit more money. But all you're ever trying to do is get back to that eight-year-old who was always told she was fucking pretty, you know? And it's just exhausting. And what are the tools? So you were talking about how first you uncover and a lot of empathy can come from well, people don't know. So now this woman knows that it comes from her four-year-old self who is constantly being told she's beautiful, she's beautiful or whatever it was. Like, she wasn't and she's trying or to She be. wasn't. Yeah. There's a million stories there. And so what are, what are the tools once you discover, like once you know, what do you do with that knowledge? So I'm not much of a tool guy. I'm more of an awareness guy. Like, you know, tools to me are used when there's a problem. I'm helping people say there isn't a problem. So what I would do in those cases is help them see what is the deep-seated narrative around the way that you view yourself. So if out way, way, way in the distance, we've got, I'm worried about calories, which is in their mind, a reflection of how that's going to impact my body. Why is that important? Because I want to lose weight. Why do you want to lose weight? Because I want to look pretty. Why do you want to look pretty? Because deep down, I don't think I am. And then beneath that, there'll be some sense of self-negation where I'm not loved. And where did that come from? Or I'm not good enough, you know, or whatever it is. So my mechanism is to circumnavigate the need for tools by dissolving the fundamental lie that someone has about themselves which in my vernacular is always a negation. What that means, it's always not. I'm not something. I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not loved. I'm not safe. You know, I'm not worthy. So 
I take it down to the fundamental knot, which is a play on words because it's a K-N-O-T in your psyche too, and undo that by seeing the validity of that. So then I'll say, okay, well, your dad said X or your mom said X or a high school teacher didn't pick you for the cheerleading school. And at that moment, your brain made up the idea that, well, I'm not good enough because, you know, Sally Higgins, she got picked and I didn't, you know, and it's like, okay, but does that actually mean as an absolute truth that you're not good enough? And then people realize, no, that doesn't, that's not a truth. I've carried it for 30, 40 years, but it's not an actual truth. And then in the absence of that lie, that's when freedom comes in and they have an entirely different relationship to life. And ironically, from that space, they wouldn't care about calories because they're so free that their digestion would be different. Because here's the rub, is somebody who's so focused on their calories isn't digesting their food properly because they're already in a state of fight or flight, which means you don't actually assimilate your food. So it's, again, a vicious cycle. That's, those are like all the IBS people. I can say that because I was one of them. Absolutely. Total stress, yeah. you know, which isn't the precursor to having rest and digest parasympathetic so that your body takes what it needs, it absorbs the nutrients that are appropriate and gets rid of the waste that it isn't. If you're in a state of worry, you know, there's a sliding gradient between panic and fear to just worry and concern. But somewhere in the middle, someone who's counting calories isn't a mild to at least consistent state of stress. And if that's the way you're relating to life, then your digestive system isn't a priority. Because your brain is telling mm -hmm. you you're trying to survive something right now. You know, in this case, getting ready for the big gala event or because your neighbor lost weight or whatever. But you're fighting life. And if you're fighting, you're not digesting food properly. We definitely see that a lot. Like I'd say that's something one of probably the top leading people come to us is like stress around their relationship to their bodies and their food. Yeah. And which then in turn creates the exact reality they're trying to run from. A hundred percent. And it's not even, it is their relationship to their body, but that's symptomatic of their relationship to themselves. Mm -hmm. So that's why I get to the core. And then it's like, I mean, I have seen people's facial expressions change in front of me. It's insane. Let alone like in a mastermind that I do, you know, where people come and learn my coaching methodologies and they witness me coach with somebody like it's so moving to see somebody's like the first of all the tears that come out because of all the suppressed hurt, but then the liberation they experience, and then their body just starts to heal accordingly. I mean, I've had people with multiple sclerosis to the cancers, to someone had an eating disorder for seventeen years, and in twenty minutes of coaching realized it was all made up. I was on stage in Austin a few weeks ago speaking in an event. A guy came up on stage who'd had a stutter since he was a kid, gone in twenty minutes. Now, will he maybe well, revisit well, that sometimes? Maybe, but I showed him why. It was just a little boy who was so scared in front of his dad that he thought there was something wrong with him and that he was going to get the wrong answer so he didn't feel safe. And his whole jaw just like got tense. So when you undo that and see that it's not a true, the relief, like he said on stage, he said, I feel like my jaw is completely fluid right now. It was so beautiful. Wow. And that's the kind of like hopping dimensions you're talking about where yeah. you could do like the physical work, which is also important. Yes. But you have to match it with the subconscious mind work. If you want to have any consistent results. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people I work with athletes who train hard and they get decent results, you know, but when they realize that they've been working within a framework that by design is limited, 
it's kind of, it's staggering sometimes. Like I have one of my professional golfers say, wow, it's amazing what I've accomplished in spite of myself. <laughs> you know, when you break down the walls of the prison, so much more becomes available. Today, I am very excited to tell you about our Super Bar collection. We recently updated our cult favorites, Detox, Beauty, and Energy Super Bars that you all know and love to ensure that we're continuing to deliver on our commitment to providing you with the best tasting and most nutritious products on the market. These are the perfect on-the-go snack and ensure you don't have to sacrifice quality for convenience. All of these newly formulated bars focus on stabilizing your blood sugar, which, as you know, because you listen to the Sakara Life podcast, is at the core of metabolic health. We have increased the protein in each bar, so it now contains 12 grams. Each bar has 40% of your fiber, which is really important for your microbiome. The sugar has been cut in half, also a part of stabilizing your blood sugar. We have new functional ingredients, things like sea buckthorn oil that have omega-7. They're all USDA certified, no added chemicals, toxins, etc. as always. So our collection has energy. Energy bar is really delicious. It's kind of like this... Uh, Mexican hot cocoa. It's like chocolate, but it has cinnamon. It contains adaptogenic mushrooms to increase energy and lower cortisol. Our beauty bars are probably have the biggest change. They went from like a strawberry kind of burst to now these ones are lemon, citrus, and poppy seed. They are so juicy and delicious. Contain sea buckthorn oil, as I was talking about earlier, enhances collagen production and hydrates the skin. And our detox bar, which I'm allowed to have a favorite, I'd say is my favorite. It has blue spirulina that supports the detox pathways in the body and has sesame seeds, which not only add a really delicious texture to the bar, which is blue, by the way, but also contains added calcium and vitamin E, etc. So check out the new super bars. And when you get to the website and you check out, type in podcast 15 for 15% off your purchase. Are there places where you don't feel free that you're working on? Not that I'm aware of, you know, to go back to Witt's question, you know, it's like, you know, I equally am humble enough to know there might be things that I also don't know, I don't know, but I've been doing this for quite a while. So I've, I've looked under pretty much every freaking corner. So then what is, can you explain what freedom feels like? Like, what is it? Because I feel like most of our lives are spent having some sort of attachment to those traumatic events that we had as children and then the stories we hold about those traumatic events. Yeah, it's a beautiful um, question. And many of those events are, especially if it is more categorized as a trauma, usually the way that we survive as kids is we can't cope. And so we push it down, we suppress, we repress, right? So even many of those traumas have been quote unquote forgotten for the means of protecting and surviving, right? So what does it feel like? You know, it's the ultimate in joy. It's the ultimate in relief. It's where I'm no longer in any way whatsoever a victim of any circumstance. There's no circumstance I can't handle. There can still be personal preference, right? I don't want to be stood against a wall for a 
firing squad, that probably wouldn't be fun. But if that's my karma, then there's just complete and utter reconciliation of any kind of suffering. And what about people in relationships? Because I personally find... <laughs> oh, then you're fine. <laughs> I have a lot more freedom outside be... <laughs> of my marriage. <laughs> it's like my particular union with my partner is one of like we really really find each other in those hot button moments and like where my trauma is and where his trauma is it's like they bounce off each other instead of like we have a hard time holding each other in those places so it leads to a lot uh like we're very fiery yeah so what are your what are your thoughts on or tips for people who who might have a kind of more ease in life or more sense of freedom in their day to day, but then in relation tend to find like, I, I am grateful for him because he helps me find my dark corners. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. I think, you know, relationships are the, the cauldron within which we get to alchemize our limitations. Right. So that to me is why we have relationships. Like one of my most popular quotes that people post on Instagram is that life will present you with people and circumstances to reveal where you're not free. And so that to me is the, we could almost say the raison d'etre, the, the purpose of a relationship, especially an intimate relationship where you get married and the, the confines come in a little tighter, like you can't date someone and then just disappear or, you know, cold turkey out of it. Like, you know, you're kind of held in a container where you have to face your, as you said, your dark spot. So that is the beauty. But so then the tip is to one, recontextualize what a relationship is, which is don't see your partner as the antagonist or certainly the reason for your suffering. That Now you're a victim. It's like, well, I'm upset because my husband said that. Now you're just powerless. Versus you can turn it around and go, okay, that's, you know, once the fire has dissipated and you can breathe a little bit like that exhale that you just had, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, okay, why, what, what was that about my ex or my partner or my mom or my dad saying that upset me? Because that's in me, not out there. They're, you know, this is hard for people to hear, but the people that upset you the most are your greatest teachers. We, of course, try to avoid them or we poo-poo them or we rationalize why we don't want to hang out with them. But whatever it is in that dynamic in a relationship, romantic or otherwise, that is a sore spot for you is the part of you that's looking to be reconciled and released. So that that just that reframe can often help people a lot. Like I'm not pissed off because of my husband, but my husband said X and I felt hurt. So what in me and how does that correlate to maybe something that I've been through before, typically in childhood, where his words, his demeanor reminded me of fill in the blank. When my dad or my mom or my teacher said da-da-da, and then I felt like no one cares about me. My feelings don't matter. And then so that's that to me is the beauty of a relationship. If you know how to use it to reveal your own shortcomings or your own uh, limitations, then it's a blessing. But most people just use it as an excuse as to why you're pissed off. In order to get to a place where maybe Danielle and her husband aren't as fiery together, it's going back to like, what is that triggering? Yes. And releasing a narrative there. Yeah. So that 
you can stand there in that conversation and instead of being heated or triggered. If you can, first of all, reframe it, as I said, and go, okay, where can I be responsible for my reaction? Because we're under the impression that we are victims of life. I'm upset because of this. I'm hurt because of that. It's always pointing to something. It's basically the false association of the source of my, like S-O-U-R-C-E, of my emotional state. Think about driving, right? Like someone cuts you off and you get upset. You think you're upset because that person cut you off. You're basically giving that person power over your emotional well-being, which when you break it down that way, doesn't make any sense. So I don't even know who that is in a box with rubber, metal, and plastic that's moving on the road. Like it's, it's asinine. Yet the warrants compassion because maybe you're tired, you're stressed, you're late for a meeting. I get it. But then that's the absence of responsibility. So to me, it really comes down to one of the hardest things for people to assimilate, which is that you're either a hundred percent responsible for life, your life, or you're a victim. It's basically a zero or one at that level. So if you want to be powerful, then you have to be fully responsible, which also, by the way, is the only way that you get to freedom. Because you can't be free if you're a victim at any level. So if somebody wants to have a powerful life, then they will take on and look at what triggers me and why. Because that's in me, not out there. And that's a really hard conversation for people to understand. You have to have unwavering faith that what you're saying is true and that there is karma and reincarnations and... yeah a point to the lessons that we have to learn. Like if you believe we just kind of go nowhere after this, then the suffering is pointless. It's pointless and it also seems powerless and it seems disgusting and it seems sad and tragic. And it's not to say that if you're aware of misdemeanors or injustices in the world, that you don't take action just because you reconcile it away with karma. Oh, well, that's just their karma. No, if you could do something, I spent all my life, uh, certainly as an adult from the age of like 30, doing everything I can to make people's lives better. So it's not an either or, it's an and, right? Which is, yeah, there's just injustice in the world and it's pretty hard to look at. Yes, that's karma. And if I can do something, then do something. Mm -hmm. I recently posted to my Instagram about my son who has type 1 diabetes, and Uh a friend commented, I wonder what superpower this adversity will give him. Beautiful. Yeah, and I'm sure that touched you as a mom, as somebody who obviously, especially is in the food industry, who's trying to help people be healthy. That's, you know, Mm -hmm. my question would be to turn that around, and I can see the water behind your eyes, but, you know, what superpower is that giving Whitney, right? And we can see it. It's beautiful. Like here's somebody who's doing everything she can, who loves and adores her son. And yet maybe the superpower that you're getting is profound acceptance, profound compassion. And that's not easy. I think for me, it's driving me deeper into my personal mission, deeper into the research around health and root cause, root cause medicine and being a piece of something that is a bigger conversation than what even what we've we've talked about to date through Sakara, where we've helped so many you know millions of people now and i think that this is helping me to open up my mind to just that much more potential 
of who we can help and how we can help them. I have to look at this as a gift, as a piece of my karma, as a piece of my path. And as difficult as it is for me, I have to accept that it's a piece of his karma and a piece of his path too. Yeah. And that ultimately it'll make him stronger, even though, you know, I worry about like last night it was, he didn't want to get his insulin pump put on him and was just fighting against it. And I think about what these moments, how they're going to affect him as an adult when he's older, what, what type of thought patterns and mental kind of like shackles or patterns or whatever he might be creating right now through these moments of struggle together and being afraid of, of mommy, you know, holding this insulin pump that he doesn't want put on him. Yeah. I get it. And listen, you're, I've never met either of you, but I can see the beauty in both of you as beings, but as moms. And I, I don't think there's a human on the planet that I revere more than mothers. Like you, you just never get enough acknowledgement. There just isn't enough acknowledgement for mothers. So for whatever I can do as a man, you know, to acknowledge you both here live, I just want you to hear that. And, okay. and it's so beautiful. And I acknowledge you for just the depth, the such depth of love you have for your son. But it's a little bit tainted with the concern, which would be your karma of how he perceives you, right? You know, I'm doing this because I have to, it's the way I'm going to keep you alive, right? Like it's a life or death conversation. It's not like I prefer you in a blue t-shirt versus red. Like it's, it's a legitimately yeah. significant conversation. So I think, you know, for your opportunity, and I obviously didn't know we we're going to have this conversation, you know, it's an opportunity for you in your new pursuit of root cause of health issues. Like the whole allopathic medicine system is, it's a cartel, right? It's not about health. It's doctors are trained in pathology and pharmacology. They're not trained in health. So for you, I would, as you are, look at the root cause as karma right? That's the real root cause. And then beyond that is the subconscious stuff that I deal with where you can't hold yourself accountable for the fact that you love your son so much, you're doing the best you can with the resources you have. That's where you can find peace. He may not understand. How old is he? Two and a half. Yeah. So he's two and a half, right? So at this point, his ability to comprehend the actions, he's going solely on the sentient experiences of pain, of frustration, that he doesn't understand, he can't comprehend. And this is why when we're young like that, we need care providers who keep us alive, like you're keeping him alive. I think if I'm accurate, you know, what's hurting you is, first of all, you don't want to hurt your son, you adore him. But also you hate the fact that you're occurring as a mother who's doing something that he's perceiving as not good or painful or frustrating or whatever. And if you can recontextualize it, that this is all in the auspices of love. It's all love. All you're doing is love. And then it gives you permission to forgive yourself because a mother who doesn't love her child would be like, well, fuck it, or I'll just, whatever you would do, but you're, you're choosing the best resources you can because you care that much. So if that's worth anything, I can remember when I woke up in a hotel in Santa Monica once, I was crying after the end of a relationship that was really difficult for me. And it, what occurred to me was the injustice of the fact that I was such a loving, kind, caring guy, and it didn't seem fair that someone would leave me, right? That's how it occurred, and there was sadness. 
But then I woke up in the middle of the night, bolt upright, and I realized, wow, I'm such a loving, kind, caring guy. And it just turned it around. And I was like, that's an asset. It's not a weakness. And it doesn't have any injustice. This was just a timing thing that helped me to see my deep fear of loss transcend that. So I would see that in you. It's like, wow, just such a loving, doting, caring mother. I think one thing that you said that resonated with me was accepting that this is a piece of his karma, that he needs to go through this to build whatever character it is that he's supposed to have in the future. Yeah. Resilience, strength, the capacity to face things he doesn't want. Because again, I'm not wishing this, I'm making this up purely as speculation. But what if, like me, he meets the love of his life when he's young and he thinks he knows what love is and she leaves him? You know, that could be akin to, well, I don't want this to happen, but he's already through you in the container of love, learned that it's okay. I can, I can go through things that aren't always pleasant and I'll come out the other side and I'm going to be okay. Yeah, it's, it's funny because Whitney and I have always said it was mostly our struggles that brought us to Sakara. Yeah. It was working through the things that we never thought we'd get to the other side to, things that we certainly never thought we'd be talking about on podcasts and live right. television about our deepest kind of insecurities and fears. But, you know, so much of I think back through my childhood, like so much of the hardships that I personally went through are what landed me in the exact moment where I had a choice to work through them and working through them and using food as medicine and really like changing my mind. And that as medicine is what brought us to Sakara and gave us the hope that we could help one other person. Yeah. And so I think about that with both Whitney and I personally, but also Bodhi. And I actually think about it with my kids, like they're going to have their own trauma. And I, I'm constantly thinking <laughs> about how much privilege do you want to offer your kids? Like I, yeah. as a kid grew up on food stamps. So my mom had to tell me no a lot. Like we'd go out and I'd be like, Oh, I want the, you know, fruity pebbles, which I would never let my kids have now, but that was like the exciting <laughs> cereal. <laughs> and she would have to say no, because it was also like so much more expensive than the generic one. Like I have these memories of her having to constantly say no. Yeah. And now, you know, obviously as long as it's healthy, like my kids can kind of have whatever they want. Yeah. And so I just think about that in terms of like the opposite way. Like, of course they'll have their own trauma. I'm not worried about that. They will, but they also have a privilege that I didn't have. And so me personally navigating it as their mother yeah. is bringing up stuff for me too. For sure. And that's the process of evolution, right? Like I often say, life isn't about circumstantial comfort. It's about spiritual evolution. So you could look at your form of what forged you, you know, Danielle, as a human was at that time, the nose, the, the lack of resources, the scarcity mindset, the, the mm -hmm. nose. But then perhaps in ways that you didn't fully comprehend, but now you're witnessing as the outcome is, you know, you became more resilient, you became more disciplined, you became more determined or whatever it is. So, but the evolution now of you as a being creating an environment that using your word of privilege, what I would say slightly more free, your kids are going to have the more subtle version of adversity right? Yeah. Is it going to yeah. be, well, I can't get into Harvard, you know, yeah. like without getting too snooty, but like, you know, 
hopefully as consciousness evolves, we all get to benefit from this increased sense of evolution, which to me is commensurate with possibility and freedom. Right? You couldn't have what you wanted as a kid, less freedom. Your kids can have what they want within the auspices of healthy, more freedom. Right, And so that to me is the journey that we're all on as we're discovering more freedom, which is the absence of constraints, whether they be subconscious, physical, financial, or whatever. One of the first things you said when we got on was like, what a shit show we're all in. Like, so do you believe in progress? Like, do you believe that as a species, we're progressing towards something better? Like, is consciousness being raised or are we kind of like de-evolving? I think it's sort of, a, it's, it sort of seems like oxymoronic. I think both are happening simultaneously. <laughs> so I think mm-hmm. there are those that have used these last three years of a lot of pretense and hypocrisy and tyranny to exit the matrix. There's the decomposition of systems that don't work, like, you know, we're going to see the whole financial system that they're trying to change to central digitized currencies. We're seeing, you know, agriculture getting a lot of adversity. We're seeing even pharma, big pharma. Now, parents that I know are like, whoa, shit, I don't know if I want to give my kids any injections. (laughs) You know, it's like with all the stuff that's coming out. So there's a lot of decomposition and de-evolution. We're witnessing en masse what we all go through. And right now I'd say we're going through puberty and it's really ugly. <laughs> and we got pimples breaking out on our foreheads and hair coming out of places we didn't know it could. And, the awkward stage. Yeah, and it's pretty disgusting, you know. But eventually, you know, as a species, we're pretty immature. I mean, if a advanced species landed on our planet, they would be like, these guys are fucking idiots, right? Like, we abuse ourselves, we abuse the people around us that we even claim to love, and we abuse the planet we live on. I mean, it's like we're really not that smart. So, you know, we've got a long way to go, and I think that also warrants a lot of compassion and empathy is that, yeah, we we do some dumb shit, you know, and yet I believe that ultimately, just like you going through what you went through or Bodhi going through what he's going through, we are the microcosm of the macrocosm, which is we're all going through growing pains. And these growing pains right now are pretty significant. And But I still hold faith and trust and do my part to contribute to the evolution of a beautiful baby on the other side. So if we don't uh, destroy ourselves as a species, then we're going to evolve into something wonderful and beautiful over the course of time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, people worry about the planet. I'm like, forget the planet. Not that I don't care about the planet. I do. But I'm like, the planet will get rid of us as a species before it falls apart. So unless we get our shit together, then yeah, the species will end. But there's enough people who are awake and, you know, doing all the good things like you girls in your industry and helping people and I'm doing my parts. And there's, there's millions of people who understand the principles of what allow for mind and body to be vital and healthy and to have you know, functional relationships on the foundations of love and kindness. And, you know, there's just the the select few who have always been there who are happy to lie and cheat and steal and be corrupt. And usually they seem to be in politics, but they're the minority. (laughs) Well, this feels like a great place to ask you for some light work for our Sakara Light listeners. It can be a challenge. It can be a practice, some sort of homework to help people put into action maybe what we've spoken about today to help everybody shine their light a little bit brighter. Beautiful. I mean, and I love the intention of that. I might 
be, I don't know, I haven't listened to every single one of your podcasts, but I was going to say, I might be the antithesis to what you normally hear, which is a suggestion of what to do. And, and it mine falls into that, but I would want people to consider this. You are the light, right? So if you are to allow your light to shine brighter, it's less about what to do and it's about what to remove. Right? So I often use the analogy, if we're all bright lights, but we have a myriad of different lampshades on top of us that seem to dull the light. So the work is to remove the lampshades that hide the bright light that you already are. So it's around cleansing, whether you know it could be physical, it could be environmental, you know, like how many people have got a garage that's full of crap that they can't put their $60,000 car in, you know, or how many people's closets are you know, full of clothes that no longer serve them and they don't wear that anymore. Like that could be a great place for people to start is you could literally get more light. I think light and space are sort of synonymous. So create space in your environment, in your body, but most importantly, in the deep recesses of your mind. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Peter. This was a great conversation. Appreciate the work you do in the world, helping people shine their lights. Thank you, ladies, too. And it's beautiful to be with these two beautiful moms who are doing everything they can to help their kids shine their light. So that they, they incarnated in a good family. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. That was awesome. Today, we're getting back to the basics of Sakara, And so we wanted to share a bit about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program for all of those listeners that are new to us. We created this program after healing ourselves to help others feel the same transformation that we experienced through the power of food as medicine. This program is based on the science behind a whole food plant-rich diet and has been crafted around our proprietary nine pillars of nutrition, which focuses on things like nutrient diversity and eating the rainbow, eating your water and getting enough sulfur-rich veggies into your diet, as well as cultivating body intelligence in order to have true mind, body, and soul transformation. The Sakara Signature Nutrition Program makes clean eating easy. It's entirely free from meat, gluten, dairy, refined sugar, pesticides, harmful chemicals, and GMOs. The menu is chef-crafted and changes weekly to highlight seasonal ingredients and recipes so you never have to sacrifice taste for eating healthy. If you're interested in learning more about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program, head to sakara.com to see how you can customize the program to fit your needs and lifestyle. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com. And for a limited time, we wanted to give you all a gift of transformation. So use the code PODCAST20 at checkout for 20% off your first order of Sakara Life. I think so many of us are so busy these days trying to take care of the entire world around us, whether you're a busy professional or a mom. I encourage you to give this gift of nutrition to yourself. You deserve to feel amazing in your body. And when you nourish yourself, then you're able to better take care of the world around you and share your special gifts with the world. <laughs>